1: Straight from the source, tonight, we could potentially hear any moment from the judge overseeing the 2020 election interference case. As we wait, the special counsel's team just swung back at Trump and his lawyers after they complained that his free speech rights could be limited, but there's a non disclosure order over evidence in the case. Of course, this is also coming as we are learning more about a foiled plot in Ukraine when it comes to Ukrainian President Zelensky. What we are hearing about this informant who is apparently passing along key intelligence about the ukrainian leader also tonight we have one of the greatest athletes of all time here to join us katie ledecky has just swum her way into the world record books once again defeating michael phelps taking out one of his titles that he once previously held we'll talk to her live in just a moment i'm caitlin collins and this is the source As we noted, tonight we are waiting to potentially hear any moment from the judge overseeing the 2020 election interference case. As we wait, the special counsel's team has just responded to Trump and his attorneys from a filing that they sent in just about three hours ago, where they complained that his free speech rights could be limited if there's a non-disclosure order over evidence in the case. They want the judge to put measures in place so Trump can't publicly share some of that evidence. Jack Smith is now arguing that the former president's team is basically trying to try the case in the press, saying, quote, the defendant seeks to use the discovery material to litigate this case in the media. Smith shared complaints about the case that Trump's newest defense attorney, John Laro, made in five different television interviews yesterday. This all came right after Trump's post on Friday night, where he wrote in all capital letters, if you go after me, I'm coming after you. Trump's attorneys are now arguing that was a reference to political adversaries, not legal ones. All of this is coming as CNN is also learning tonight that security for Judge Chukkin has increased at the federal courthouse in Washington as Trump is stepping up his attacks on her, publicly insisting that she recuse herself from his case. We've also learned exclusively that Trump's ally, Bernie Carrick, met with special counsel and their investigators today. He, of course, is the disgraced New York, former New York City police commissioner And his attorney says that they mainly focused on what Rudy Giuliani was doing after the 2020 election. Of course, all of that means this investigation goes on. So what does this mean for Trump's legal case and how the judge here is planning to handle it? Could say a lot by how she rules. Perspective now from retired California Superior Court Judge Ladoris Hazard Cordell. Judge, thank you so much for joining me tonight. As I was noting, you know, just a few moments ago, we heard from the special counsel. They're responding to the Trump team over this protective order. And part of what they said, and I'm quoting the special counsel's team now, is the defendant has proposed an unreasonable order to facilitate his plan to litigate this case in the media to the detriment of litigating this case in the courtroom. They say normal order should prevail. And of course, this is a point they made repeatedly throughout the filing. What do you make of that response?
2: Well, it's important to know that a protective order is asked for evidence that's being handed over in discovery. Discovery happens in a criminal case, prosecutors turn over information to the defense. Not all information in discovery is admissible in court. It might be deemed to be irrelevant or too prejudicial. So what Trump's people want is to take all of this information, no matter what it is, whether or not it is admissible, and put it all out there for the world to see. And the problem with that, of course, is that what that does is inflame uh, the jury. It gets potential jurors, and it gets them to see information that perhaps they would not ever see if they were selected of jurors to be in a trial. You know, I presided over nearly 20 years I was on the bench over lots of criminal cases. Some of them got media attention. And never once did I ever have a defendant, defendant ever take discovery, and then go put it all out for everyone to see. It just doesn't happen. So I think it's absolutely appropriate to issue a protective order in this case.
1: Yeah, it sounds like you think that that's a, a genuine concern that Jack Smith's team has here.
2: Absolutely. All of this information just should not be put out. It's up to the judge to decide what information will come into the trial. So to put it all out there, there's only one purpose, and that is to just inflame people and to influence people who might be jurors in the case, which is all inappropriate. The case should be tried in the courtroom with decisions made about what evidence is admissible and what is not.
1: And I think you just made a really important point, and and I want to get to what Trump's team is saying about this, but what you just made is a really important point that this is a protective order. This is not asking for a gag order, which would mean that he can't basically speak at all publicly about this case. And my understanding is that a protective order is a pretty standard move this early on in a criminal prosecution like this.
2: Absolutely. This this is standard procedure. And and so what people are seeing is a playbook for how to delay a criminal case. Just delay, delay, delay. So picket everything. So this is standard information. And again, the key is we want to have a fair trial for both sides. And the only way to do that is for a judge to determine what is admissible evidence and what is not. And it cannot happen if all of the discovery is then just thrown out by Trump's side and just everyone in the public and the media gets to see it when it may not even be relevant or appropriate in the case.
1: And here's how Trump's team is arguing. So their deadline was 5 o'clock today. Then we just saw Jack Smith's team respond to what they said. But Trump's team was basically arguing, um, and I'm quoting from their filing now. They say, in a trial about First Amendment rights, the government seeks to restrict First Amendment rights. Worse, it does so against its administration's primary political opponent during an election season in which the administration, prominent party members, and media allies have campaigned on the indictment and proliferated it, its false allegations. I mean, how do you think Judge Chuckkin will read that argument from the Trump, the Trump team?
2: Well, I don't think she's going to give it much uh, merit at all. And I hope she doesn't spend much time on it. An election is not a trial. They're two distinct things. And uh, you know what they're basically saying is, First Amendment, they clearly, his lawyers and Trump, do not understand the meaning of the First Amendment. This has nothing to do with First Amendment. This has everything to do with making sure there is a fair trial. And the only person in charge of doing that, it's not Trump, it is the judge in this case. Her rulings will determine how the trial will proceed, and she will follow all of the rules and therefore ensure that there's going to be a fair trial for both sides.
1: Depending on how quickly she issues a response, I mean, what will you read into that? Because it's not just what she decides here, it's also the scope of it, but also how quickly she responds. Do you think that will signify, I mean, how quickly she plans to move this case along?
2: Absolutely. and It's a very good point. Just as she responded very quickly when they wanted a continuance and she shut that down, I think her response is not going to be, oh, come back to me in 90 days and I'll give you a written decision. I think this judge understands that time is important, and she also knows what kinds of issues are important. This is not a big deal. Uh, what the Trump side says, well, we want kind of a compromise. No, either in my view, the either the protective order gets granted or it does not. My view is she will grant it because it's not an, an infringement on anyone's First Amendment rights.
1: When prosecutors were arguing for this first on Friday night, as we were talking about on this show, then they cited a post that Trump had uh, from Friday night. The one that we just read that was in all caps, um, pretty vague, but threatening, saying mildly threatening, saying, if you go after me, I'm coming after you. I mean, how much does something like that, if you're a judge making this decision, how much does that factor into her her call here?
2: Right. So I don't know necessarily that that quote impacts the protective order, but that certainly would get me thinking if I were the trial judge about a gag order in this case. Um, it's clearly a threat. And, um, a good trial judge doesn't just look at the law. You use common sense. And anyone looking at common sense, looking at what he has posted and the timing of when he posted it, raises another issue, whether or not this person and the team should be told, and this is true on both sides, just to say we're going to have a mutual gag order. And I would expect that may come next. And. I'm afraid that what after that, if indeed the gag order is issued, which is not a First Amendment issue at all, is basically saying, don't talk about this outside of the courtroom. My guess is Trump would violate it in a heartbeat. And then we'll see what the judge does in terms of consequences for violating yet another court order.
1: So you think there will be a a gag order here? At least you think that there should be?
2: Oh, I absolutely can see it coming because this man cannot shut up. Um, You know, he's a chatty Charlie. And he's going to just talk and talk. And he really doesn't care about rules and about say, uh, the rules that say you can speak or cannot speak. So this is where the test of a good trial judge comes about. If you're going to have a fair trial, it's going to be by the rules set by that person in a black robe. And if the rules are you do not talk about this other than in the court because it's not punishment, is to ensure a fair trial. If that doesn't happen, there have to be. There has to be immediate consequence to violating a court order. Only in that way can everyone have respect for the
1: system. Yeah, Well, we know what the Trump team response would be is that he's a candidate for president. He's running. He has his free speech rights. We'll see what the judge does decide here on the protective order first. Judge, thank you so much for, for joining us tonight, Judge Cordell.
2: Sure. I'm joined
1: now by our panel of legal experts, Karen Friedman-Agnifolo, Agnifilo, is the chief assistant district attorney under former Manhattan district attorney, Cy Vance, and, all, uh, and also with us, Nick Ackerman, former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District uh, of New York. Thank you both for being here. Obviously, a key question of what the judge is going to decide, which could be at any moment, Nick, is, is how broad the scope of this protective order is. Do you agree with the judge there that the, the points of it, the real concern about Trump? Bu- potentially sharing some of this evidence that oh, Jack Smith. Oh, absolutely. Studios. And what's
3: most amazing here, Caitlin, what is most amazing is they agreed to the precise same order, protective order, in the Miami case. Uh, and it's the same protective order, in essence, that went into effect in the New York prosecution. So this is, just as the judge said, nothing but a technique to try and delay this, try and drag it out, try and have hearings, try and have more motions— I don't think the judge is going to put up with this.
1: Well, and let me ask you, Karen, because we did just hear from the judge. Uh, She has signaled that she is going to hold a hearing this week on this dispute, on what restrictions should be imposed, on what evidence is going to be shared. She's told the parties to come with by 3 p.m. tomorrow, two options for when that hearing could be held. I mean, are you surprised by any of this or is this what you expected to happen?
4: Well, so if you just back up a little bit, you know, Trump was just arraigned last week on this case, right? He was just released from custody because when he was arrested, he was in custody. And when he was released, the judge imposed certain conditions, right? And one of them was, don't commit any new crimes, don't threaten, you know, just standard. <laughs> exactly, don't- exactly. And and that night, he tweets this, this, you know, if you're coming after me, I'm coming after you. And I think... It really flies in the face of just common sense that it was he wasn't referring to them. I mean, just like when he had the baseball bat picture next to Alvin Bragg's head, and then he says, no, I was just, you know, the American-made baseball bats. I mean, he says things that are just don't make any sense. And I think this is like that as well. And the judge, in another case, okay, if it was not Donald Trump, if you had somebody who tried to steal an election— Take over the Capitol, has three open indictments, 78 charges, was released, and then threatened the prosecutors and the judge. Any other defendant would be put in. He would be incarcerated. Mm -hmm. So this defendant is already being treated leniently and differently than everybody else. And this, Jack Smith going and saying, you know, we just want a protective order, is a very mild step to try and protect his. First Amendment rights while he's running for office, but also protect the integrity of the case.
1: Yeah. And so we see what Trump himself is arguing. We also see what his attorneys are arguing. And John Laro is one of them who is on several networks yesterday making this argument. And specifically, this was about Pence and the role he plays in right. this and what Trump was pressuring Pence to do and asking him to do. This was John Laro's defense of that.
3: You're saying that asking is action. No, asking is aspirational. Asking is not action. It's core free speech. What President Trump did not do is direct Vice President Pence to do anything.
1: That contradicts a key point in the indictment. They say he did pressure him to do
3: it. Of course he did. And if he was aspirational, sure. He was aspiring to be a major crook. He was bypassing Richard Nixon in the crook book. I mean, he was essentially putting together a major scheme to steal the election from Joe Biden. He did that by, first of all, setting up this elaborate scheme in all of the battleground states with fake electors that claimed to be the legitimate electors for those states for Trump, so that Mike Pence could then go into the Senate and count the vote and basically count the fake electors and declare the election for Donald Trump. And then they changed the scheme after Mike Pence refused to do that. Then they tried to get him to send it back to the states so the state legislatures would vote in the fake electors. Uh, And all of this is in the context of all of the pressure that was put on by Donald Trump on the various state officials who he was trying to get to change the vote.
1: Well, And he's still going after Pence also on social media. I mean, he he posted yesterday uh, talking about... Uh, how he's gone to the dark side, you know, criticizing him. It's coming as John Laro's arguing Mike Pence could be their best witness was was his argument. But Karen, can we go back to just the breaking news that we're getting about the judge scheduling the hearing this week, basically giving them until 3 p.m. tomorrow to come up with two options of when that hearing could happen? Is that a hearing where Trump's team would go into it, Jack Smith's team would go into it, and
4: we would get a decision by the end of it over what this could look like on Pot- this? Potentially, she could rule from the bench or she could rule after afterward. We see she's been so swiftly ruling and making decisions that I don't anticipate her allowing this to drag on. I mean, it, all judges now know that Trump's number one tactic is to delay cases, right? He, he has filed... You know, countless numbers of both civil civil cases all across the country and in his his criminal cases he just wants to delay he doesn't want a trial in court he wants his trial in the court of public opinion and that's why he they don't want this protective order is that what you think it is exactly exactly he wants to try this case in the court of public opinion
1: we will see what the judge decides we could we'll see when this hearing happens potentially as well karen and nick thank you both for being here Another week, another Trump indictment watch. A Georgia grand jury could be very close to a vote. We have someone who just was subpoenaed to testify before them. The state's former Republican Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan is here. Plus, a close call after Ukraine foiled an alleged plot to assassinate President Zelensky, arresting a female Russian informant, what she was said to be doing when they found her. Another potential legal headache for the former president, this time out of Fulton County, Georgia, where the district attorney, Fonnie Willis, is wrapping up her own criminal probe into efforts to overturn the 2020 election and the results in her state. CNN has now learned that Georgia's former Republican lieutenant governor, Jeff Duncan, got a subpoena to testify before the grand jury this month. He is the third witness, the fourth witness that we know of now to have been subpoenaed. And what is the clearest sign that indictments are potentially coming in this long-running investigation and Jeff Duncan joins me now. Thank you so much uh, for being here tonight. When did you get the subpoena and when is it asking for you to appear?
5: Uh, well, I'm going to certainly keep the details uh, to to myself just to protect the integrity of the investigation. But they're a very clear subpoena that, that was delivered to us uh, late last week. And uh, we will certainly answer the questions that they've got before us and answer their call to show up for this for the uh, grand jury.
1: Okay, so you got it late last week. What do you expect that they're going to ask? I mean, what areas, you know this, you witnessed it. What do you think that they're going to focus on with you?
5: Well, I certainly have no idea what their exact questions are. And and I've been an open book. I've literally written a book about this and (laughs) and tried to change the direction of the Republican Party. Uh, I saw this coming just hours after the 2020 election and saw the misinformation, the deluge of of false information starting to flow out. And, uh, you know, it's just part of the game, right? It was this angry, visceral, loud mistaken conservatism, right? And that's really what Donald Trump has done is confuse Republicans around the country that the louder you are, the angrier you are, the more conservative you are, and that couldn't be any more correct. There's so many other things that played out, right? For, for, for me, one of the pinnacle um, kind of broken moments in this whole process was the State Farm Arena, right? Here we, here we have this, this kind of cooked up fake Senate hearing that shows up at the Georgia Capitol that Rudy Giuliani put on for the sole purpose in my opinion of releasing a spliced up video that he sold as pretty much a a steady stream of video and confused and and created all kinds of of rumors and conspiracy theories that that ended up being 20, 30, 40, 50 cuts of of reality and delivered that. And that really was a catalyst moment for this whole process, right? It started to take those folks that were on the fence, good, hardworking Republicans that were on the fence, and all of a sudden the president of the United States is telling them that this is a real video. Rudy Giuliani and the entire apparatus are telling them it's real. And sure enough, it, it it it's not. It's just bits and pieces of misinformation.
1: Yeah, is it even clear who is behind that video at this point?
5: I certainly have no idea, but uh, somebody certainly ordered a spliced up video for for a particular purpose, I'm, I'm assuming, and somebody paid for it, right? Uh, so I think that that's the kind of information that, that's gonna go through. And Caitlin, for, for, for me, in the moment, right? So there was very few of us. I felt like I was. You know, had a Dixie cup bailing water out of a boat during the, during this this period of time, trying to save the Republican Party. But you know, for me, the two things that just continue to catch me off guard every minute of every day was how coordinated so many of these things felt, but also how sloppy they were. And that, to me, is really what's going to unpack in all these state and federal indictments around. There's they're going to have to answer for these for these you know fly by the seat of their pants off the off the hip uh, moments where they were trying to to basically you know uh, s- subvert uh, democracy.
1: A Dixie cup bailing water out of the boat. I'm going to have to use that one again. Go for it. I mean, but when you look at this and you, you think that that's going to be a big part of this, uh, given that you're getting a letter, that three other people have also now gotten a subpoena here, how, su- how close do you suspect we are potentially to charges in this investigation? I mean, do you know of anyone else who's gotten a subpoena?
5: I'm not aware of anybody else at this at this moment, and and I certainly have no expectations as to timeline. I'll make myself available to answer the questions. But, you know, as a Republican, I sit here just just really, really worried. Right. I I sense this 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 anxiety of time is running out for us to do the right thing. And, you know, at some point, we're all going to have to show up. Right. Candidates running for president, sitting members of the Congress, Republican governors around the country are going to have to band together and call for Donald Trump to step aside. Right. These are really serious charges that we can we can act like they're not. We can listen to the misinformation, the 10-second sound bites. But at the end of the day, we're talking about trying to hire the next president of the United States. And as a Republican, I do not want that to be Joe Biden. And if Donald Trump is our nominee, it will continue to be Joe Biden for four more years.
1: Well, I want to ask you one more question about the, the 2024 party. But, but previously on, you know, that call that Trump made to Georgia's Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, is a key part of this investigation. I want to remind everyone of what happened on that call and how Trump's new defense attorney is describing it now
3: the ballots are corrupt and you're going to find that they are which is totally illegal it's 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 more illegal for you than it is for them because you know what they did and you're not reporting it that's a you know that's a criminal that's a criminal offense so look all I want to do is this I just want to find uh, eleven thousand seven hundred and eighty votes, which is one more that we have, because we won the state. And what he was asking for is the secretary of state to act appropriately and find uh, these votes that were counted um, illegally. Uh, That was an aspir- hold on one second. That was an aspirational ask.
1: Does that sound aspirational to you?
5: It sounds dangerous and pathetic, in my opinion. And in that moment, when I heard that audio tape for the first time, uh, I had a sea of emotions, but probably led by embarrassment. Right here, I was at the time. It take you back in time. We were we had a runoff for two U.S. Senate seats that Donald Trump ev- eventually lost for us because of this pathetic attempt. Um, look, like I said, I, we we've got a lot of work to do. We've got a lot of medicine to take. Uh, I think Republicans, like many other people in Donald Trump's past, are going to regret ever being associated with him.
1: Do you think they will? Though, I mean, governor, you're talking about governor standing up. Governor DeSantis is is challenging Trump. He, you know, you talk about Republicans who don't speak out about Trump. He's just now acknowledging that that Trump did lose the election. I mean, that comes as CNN's poll. 69% of Republicans and Republican-leaning voters don't believe that Biden's win was legitimate. Is it too late?
5: I hope not, right? I'm one of those optimistic folks that think we can get our act together. I wish we would have gotten out of the gate stronger as Republican candidates. I mean, it's not like uh, I haven't been out there on the front lines, and others talking about a GOP 2.0, a better way forward. Because, like I said at the beginning of this, Caitlin, uh, Donald Trump has confused Republicans from coast to coast. Right, the angrier and louder you are, meant the more conservative you are. And and the reality is, we talk about build the wall. The wall was not built. We talk about drain the swamp. The swamp wasn't drained. We have a bigger mess today than when Donald Trump started. And as a Republican who wants to win the White House, we've got to do better, and we've got to reach into this. and And I just think it's going to take a Herculean effort, but I'm up for the task, I'm up to be on the team to try to help figure out a way to get as many people on the same side of this, to call for Donald Trump to step down and get out of this race, not just for the good of the Republican party, but for for the good of the country.
1: Jeff Duncan, just got a subpoena. Thank you so much for joining us to, to talk about what you could talk about
6: with it. Thanks, Kaylin.
1: Meanwhile, overseas, there is new information that we are getting tonight about a plot to kill President Zelensky and the female suspect who is now in custody. Some pretty stunning new details tonight about this alleged plot to assassinate President Zelensky. What we are hearing from Ukrainian, Ukrainian officials is they say that they have detained an alleged Russian informant that had been gathering intelligence. They say on his planned visit to the region of Mykolaiv last month. What the Ukrainian security service is saying tonight is that that informant was working to help plan a Russian airstrike that would kill the Ukrainian leader and identify the location of Ukrainian ammunition stores. Obviously that's been a key part of this entire counteroffensive and war overall. Investigators identified the informant as a former saleswoman from the region. They say they caught her quote red-handed attempting to pass intelligence on to the invaders. That is a quote from the Ukrainian security service. This is the backdrop of course as Ukraine's continuing counteroffensive targeting Russian infrastructure Authorities in Russia say that two bridges linking Crimea to the Russian-occupied territory in Ukraine's Kherson region were hit with explosions on Sunday. Joining me now for all of this is retired U.S. Army Major Mike Lyons. And so glad to have you here. You're so good with the big picture of all of this. But on this assassination plot itself, A, I don't think it'd surprise anyone that they're trying to kill Zelensky. But B, it's that they're making this public. The Ukrainians are. What do you read into that?
0: Okay, well, I think this is a message that they're sending to this network that likely exists inside of Ukraine of Russian spies and telling them they're going to try to take this network down. Uh, this was a plot. It, she didn't have a weapon in her hand or anything like that. She was gathering that information that you said, very important, ammunition stores as well, where he travels. Uh, but he's a target, no question about it. The Russians are pretty good at assassinations. And so I think this is a signal that the SBU is sending to the Russian spies are saying, we're all on top of this. And we're going to continue to work it.
1: Yeah, but we've seen the intense measures that they go to to protect him. I mean, he never appears live on, right. uh, on camera. Anything he does is recorded. Mm-hmm. Chris Christie was just talking about what the presidential palace looks like. I mean, the intense security there.
0: Yeah, and and he, there's a new threat in here, and that's these loitering drone, drones. That uh, if he knows is this a
1: drone war. Oh, is
0: absolutely. I, you know, talk, talking to actually somebody over the weekend about that. About that, the number one thing from a from a non-lethal perspective right now is getting drones. Uh, Groups like Spirit of America, they're an NGO that are, are trying to get enough information from, uh, for drones that uh, are, are collecting information on Russia. This has become a drone war. That's going to be the name of, of the game right now here. Not only the drones, but then thermal uh, imaging type blankets that are protecting Ukrainian soldiers that are forward so the Russians can't detect them. So they want to have so much. There's so many data points being established. This has become a, a drone war.
1: That's really fascinating about the the blankets. Obviously, they're trying to spot them on the front lines. We're also learning about these explosions that hit these key bridges Mm -hmm. that essentially tie uh, Crimea, which uh, Russia illegally annexed, for those who don't know, in 2014, with other parts of Ukraine that are under Russian control. I mean, how much of an impact does that have? And what does it say to you about where we are as we're approaching two months in this counteroffensive?
0: We saw the pictures. There's a hole in one of the bridges there. They are designed to knock out that eastern Uh, artery of uh, of the logistics and and the ground uh, lines of communication i'm not sure you know why they haven't done it sooner they likely didn't have the capacity to do it they came from the storm shadow missiles probably from the uk that had that kind of range in order to do that but this is how ukraine can win if they could cut off crimea threaten crimea keep it from being reinforced then russia is again forced to the negotiation table
1: yeah The other part of this are the Abrams tanks. I mean, we've been talking about these tanks so much, and we've now learned that the first shipment of them has been approved. They're expected to reach Ukraine. Finally, by September, we'll see if they get there sooner. I mean, how critical will those be into shaping what this counteroffensive looks like?
0: I think they have to hide where they're going to go uh, because that's going to be where they're going to focus their offensive when they get there. But but they're running out of time. Uh, the Ukraine army is running out of time. If they don't get there and try to penetrate something within, let's say, September, October timeframe, now we get into the rainy season, we get into the winter time within uh, Ukraine, uh, those roads are not going to be as passable as they were in the past. All Vladimir Putin has tried to do is hang on uh, until the spring, when we're now in the midst of our presidential election, and we have politicians arguing over whether or not we should support this. The only way Ukraine is going to continue to even compete is getting U.S. support for two and three years down the road right now. That all could get cut off next spring, and that's where they're in trouble.
1: Yeah, and we know that U.S. and European officials are worried that Putin is planning that very fact into his war planning. Major Meg thanks for breaking it all down for us tonight. My next guest was already the most decorated female swimmer in history before she broke Michael Phelps' world record. Now Katie Ledecky is the greatest, but she has more greatness to achieve, and she is here to tell us about it next. This is the moment that Katie Ledecky smashed another record and etched her name in the history books as the most decorated swimmer of all time. The 26-year-old American surpassed Michael Phelps for the most career individual world titles with 16, and she did it with a runaway victory in the 800-meter freestyle at the world championships in Japan. And Katie Ledecky joins me now. And Katie, I have to tell you, you are probably everyone's guest that they're the most excited about to have on the show tonight, so we're really glad that you're here. You are a 10-time Olympic medalist, a 21-time world champion, and you broke Michael Phelps' record winning your 16th individual gold. I mean... How did it feel to break that record?
6: Well, thanks for having me tonight. It's, it's a lot of fun to t- talk to you tonight, and it felt great. It was so much fun to represent Team USA at the international level again. I've been doing it for a while now, and it just doesn't get old. It doesn't get old winning a, a gold medal for, for Team USA. And um, Michael is someone that I've known for a long time now, and to break that record was was cool. I didn't really know that I was going to achieve it until a lot of people started telling me that I was, uh, that that was a possibility. So it was it was great to be able to do it and achieve some of the goals that I had set for myself this summer.
1: Yeah, I mean, and you and Michael Phelps are both from Maryland. Have you spoken to him since you broke his record? I wonder, did
6: he have anything to say? Yes, uh, he reached out and congratulated me. And he was actually in Fukuoka, at the World Championships for a few days. So I got to see him and that was great. And yeah, just to have his support means a lot. I know he's continued to support Team USA, even though he's retired now. And as you said, we're both from Maryland. So there's, there's something in the water in Maryland, that's for sure.
1: <laughs> yeah, clearly. I, I lived in DC for a long time. I never caught that bug. But um, our friend Christine Brennan noted this crazy statistic that you were actually swimming faster now than you were two years ago in Tokyo more than 4 seconds faster. I think everyone wants to know how. How does that happen?
6: Well, I'm continuing to train really hard. I'm training with a really great training group down at the University of Florida. I have a great coach, Coach Nesty, and it's just a really great place to be. It's it's where I'm I'm thriving and I'm loving every day. I have a smile on my face every day when I I go to practice and I'm around people that have similar goals. Uh, a lot of world champions and Olympic medalists in the pool with me every day, and we have a lot of fun. We keep it light, but we also are pushing toward toward Paris, and we have some really big goals over the next year. So, World Championships was a great stepping stone, but I, I don't, I hope I'm not done yet. You know, I hope <laughs> there's a lot more in the future, and this year should be a, a really great one coming up.
1: Yeah, of course. Sure you're not. I mean, you mentioned you're training in Florida. This is also another fascinating thing. Essentially, what you're doing is you're training with some of the top male distance swimmers in the world. What is that like and how is it different than, than how you were training before? Like, how does it how does it make you better, do you think?
6: Yeah, I, I know that I want to have people to chase every day in practice and I'm swimming with some of the best sprinters and distance swimmers in the world every day and I know that they'll bring the best out of me and I try to give them a run in practice every day. I I don't usually get them but um, I I try to try to chase them and I know that it it makes me better.
1: Yeah I mean at the rate you're going I have no doubt that you will but uh, you know we were thinking about this the big picture of this. I mean Simone Biles is another highly decorated female Olympian. She just had this amazing comeback at the U.S. Classic and she's someone who has spoken very openly about mental health, and the toll that being the kind of athletes that, that the two of you are on the world stage takes on you. I wonder how you balance that kind of pressure with also taking care of yourself.
6: Yeah, I've been competing on this stage since I was 15 years old. I'm, I'm 26 now, and each year I think I've always strived to find my balance, find balance between school and swimming. I completed my degree a couple years ago at Stanford, and Through that all, I I think I really learned a lot. I learned a lot about time management. I learned a lot about doing things outside of the pool. And I have really great family and friends, teammates, coaches around me. I've had that my whole career, and I feel very lucky to, to have that and to continue to be motivated every day, to continue to have fun, as I said, at practice every day. I started swimming just for the fun of it, and that's something that I never lose sight of even at the international stage.
1: And you said you hope that you're not done yet. You know, we're less than a year away from the Paris Olympics. That could be your fourth Olympics. Do you still get nervous, this kind of stuff? I mean, how do you feel when you're when you're approaching something like that?
6: I still get nervous. I, I'm i not nervous right now because I just came off of the big meat. But <laughs> I, I know that I have a big year ahead of me, a lot of hard work that I need to put in if I want to achieve the goals that I have for myself. So Uh, I I know that I want to be nervous when I get behind the blocks in Paris because that means that I I care about what I'm doing, but I know that at the end of the day I'm just going to smile and have a lot of fun while I'm doing it, and that'll take care of the nerves, and I'll give my best effort, that's for sure.
1: I love that you said that because when Tony Bennett passed away, we had one of his pianists who worked with him here on set, and he actually said that Tony Bennett had this advice about getting nervous being a good thing because it means that that you
6: care, basically. Exactly. Yeah, I think I would be concerned if I if I wasn't nervous. I, I really do care about what I do. I love what I do. I love the training. And I know that it's, it's not just me. It's the hard work of my coaches and my teammates and my family's support all these years. And I don't, I don't want to let them down. I I want to do it for them. And, um, you know, it's, it's not just, not just me when I dive in the pool. It's, it's a whole lot of people that support me. And that's, that's probably why I get nervous because I want to want to make them proud and, and just, you know, be able to look back and, and think of, of all those people when I, I touch the wall.
1: Katie Ledecky, I'm sure they are very proud of you. And thank you for for joining us tonight to talk about this. I mean, we're, we're so proud of you and all of your success. So thank you for joining us. Thank you. Meanwhile, a riverfront brawl in Alabama. This was caught on tape. There is a news conference that was just scheduled for tomorrow where hopefully more answers will come about how things turned so violent over a boat parked in the wrong place and a simple request to move it. A news conference has been scheduled for tomorrow afternoon on what led to that wild weekend brawl at the Riverfront Park in downtown Montgomery, Alabama. This happened Saturday evening when a black dock worker was trying to get a pontoon boat moved so the city's riverboat could have room to dock. But an all-out fight broke out when one of the white boaters assaulted the employee. CNN's Ryan Young has more on that chaotic scene, all caught on video.
7: an altercation on a montgomery alabama boat dock over the weekend between a group of white boaters and a black employee escalated into a massive brawl that resulted in multiple arrests Good montgomery afternoon. mayor stephen reed me. is calling for justice to be served for attacking a man who was doing his job it's an unfortunate incident and um, it's something that we're investigating right now we'll continue to go through that process uh, before we take any additional steps. It all began when the black employee was trying to clear the dock space where the Riverside Cruise, the Harriet II normally docks. The cruiser was about to return to shore and needed its space to dock.
2: You know, just doing his job. And for some reason, they didn't like it. They didn't want to move the boat. And he decided to get physical with him.
7: You can see in the video, the black employee on the dock arguing with one of the men from the pontoon boat and then another shirtless white man charging at the employee and hitting him in the face. Soon after that, you can see several others join in on the attack of the dock employee. In some of the video, which has gone viral, with millions of views, people on the boat can be heard yelling for someone to go help the employee. Then at one point, you can see a young man who has jumped off the boat swimming ashore to help the man who was being attacked.
2: The boat got closer, the guys and the crew members and everybody cut off, and that's when it happened. That's the reason why when they got off the boat, they came right to that smaller boat.
7: And that's when more fighting ensues, turning into an all-out brawl that included several people getting hit over the head with a folding chair. Soon after, officers started trying to take control, handcuffing people in the fight.
2: You know, they were the antagonists of the whole situation arrest them because, unfortunately, when things happen, people of color are the first to be put in handcuffs.
7: Many questions remain about the melee that appear to be very much split across racial lines. We are fully engaged, and we are doing all of our due diligence to find out exactly what took place. Yeah, they're talking about that investigation. Right now, what we've been told from police is four warrants have been issued. Of course... We did see some people being detained uh, yesterday in that video, but now we're told four warrants have been taken out, for arrest. We're not sure who they're looking for, but at some point, they're probably going to put handcuffs on somebody again. In this case, it's really spread and taken over the Internet at this point. Katie? Yeah,
1: I mean, and we'll see what we learn tomorrow about those potential arrests in this, in this press conference. But what's amazing also here is what you said there about how many views this has. I mean, these videos have just gone viral of people watching what was documented from several different angles here.
7: Well, when you think about it, the racial implications uh, behind this, people really saw a man who was trying to do his job and all those folks on the boat tried to come to his aid. The young man who jumped in the water at this point has so many nicknames on the Internet, it's not even funny. And we've learned that he's on the age of 18. He swam all the way across to help that worker. Um, So many people trying to figure out exactly what happened and why this escalated.
1: Yeah, we'll see if we get answers tomorrow. Ryan Young, thank you. Thank you. This just in, another Republican in the 2020 race, has qualified for the debate stage, the first Republican debate later this month in Milwaukee. They were cutting it close. We'll tell you who it is next. Just in, we have now learned that the former vice president, Mike Pence, has qualified for the first Republican presidential debate later this month in Milwaukee. That's according to his campaign. There was a question of whether or not he would meet the threshold for donors and for polling that all candidates must meet to get on that stage. Obviously, of course, they also have to sign that loyalty pledge. And this could set up a potential face-off with his former boss and running mate, Donald Trump. And we should note, Trump so far has not agreed to the debate yet. And right now, his team says it looks like he will not be there, but we shall see. On another note, before we go tonight, the former Minneapolis police officer, Tu Tao, has now been sentenced to nearly five years in prison for aiding and abetting second-degree manslaughter in the 2020 murder of George Floyd. While the former officer, Derek Chauvin, knelt on George Floyd's neck, Tao, who was a senior officer and with the Minneapolis Police Department for 11 years, was seen holding back bystanders that were visibly upset over his arrest and his well-being. Tao had already been serving a a three-and-a-half-year sentence on federal charges from a conviction for violating Floyd's civil rights. During his sentencing, Tao quoted Bible scriptures, he said his conscience is clear, to which the judge in Hennepin County responded with this.
0: After three years of reflection, I was hoping for a little
5: more remorse, regret, acknowledgement of some responsibility, uh, and less preaching.
1: He is now an added nearly five years. Of course, as the judge nodded to there, it has been more than three years since Floyd's murder that sparked worldwide protest over police brutality. That's it for us tonight. Thank you so much for joining me. CNN Primetime with Laura Coates starts right now.
7: Now, streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country